Baptist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. And now, may you be blessed as we give our attention to the reading of God's Word. From Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some of the other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned from there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, those who returned to the providence of Judah, they're in great trouble. The walls of Jerusalem have been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. It's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. That was awesome. And, um, and, and Hannah, having the courage to talk to children about fasting is awesome. And our executive pastor praying the paint off of a wall this morning. It's awesome. God's presence in this place today is awesome. Would you join your hearts in prayer with me? Oh God, we are thank thankful for the awesome awareness of your presence in this space right now. For the awesome privilege that we have to be able to lift up and to come together and to affirm and to pray and to sing and to be with brothers and sisters. Wow. There's no better word. Awesome. Pray, oh Holy Spirit, that you would descend upon our hearts now. Let this continue to be an, a space filled with your awe. May the words of my heart and the meditations uh, of my mind be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer, and it is in the name of Jesus that we offer this prayer. And those who agreed with it said, Amen. Amen. A couple weeks ago, I made a, a bit of a joke when we were talking about this series. I said, you know, we're going to come and we're going to start talking about building walls. And as soon as I said it, there was a, a good portion of our congregation who went like white. Like the, my, they were like, no, please don't. Please don't. We got enough of that business everywhere else. Um, this is what, you know, you, you have to have been living under a rock to realize that walls aren't a big thing right now. And so what I'm going to invite you to do this morning is to remember that what we're talking about happened a long time ago. And the story of walls that is currently in our news and on our social media and everywhere else, that's secondary. It really is. Let's not interpret this by what we're seeing today. 
Instead, let's let Scripture interpret our heart and then walk us forward. Can we do that together this morning? Let's, let's reject a little politician or political divide for the sake of hearing, hopefully, uh, from God this morning. And uh, hopefully realizing that this incredible story that we're going to be exploring is pretty special. So uh, this phrase, um, I want to ask, have you heard of the, the, the phrase, I've, uh, I've hit a wall? Anybody? Um, to define this phrase, it says this, a condition of sudden fatigue and loss of energy, which is caused by the depletion of glycogen stores in the liver and muscles. Okay, that's the, that's the official yay science moment right there, okay? But for those of us who, who what did I just say? Let me put it in this way. Um, I've had the joy of privilege of running the Kentucky Derby half marathon three times. And um, there is a time, every time that I have ran the race, there is a time in that race where um, my body begins to have a different kind of conversation with my mind. All right? And it is usually a very short conversation, which that's probably shocking for any of you that I am capable of having any short conversation. Um, but my mind, or my body tells my mind, done, finished, nope, that's my favorite one. Um, and, and in preparing for these races, um, you know, you're always taught you don't just run the 13.1 in preparing. You run more, 15, 16, so that when you run the race, you're prepared, you're okay. So I did that multiple times. Um, but no matter what's happened, every time I've run this silly race, it, the same thing has happened. My first race, it was right around mile nine, which was bad because I had a lot more to go. The second time was closer to mile 11, and the third time it was mile 12, where my body just said, uh-uh. Now, in runner's world, we call that the bonk. We don't call it hitting the wall. And the bonk is, is terrible it's because in those moments, you have to muster every amount of will to move the next step. So there's this amazing amount of energy that is going on beyond just your body moving. <laughs> And usually the bonk for runners is overcomable. I, I've even heard some folks who when they get past that wall, when they break through, when they get past the bonk, they have something called a runner's high and they could run and run and run and run. And my re response to that is, yeah, right. <laughs> Whatever. I've been noticing that, that hitting a wall or bonking is a really interesting concept and that I find it in, in other places across um, uh, the facets of life. Um, how about this? Anybody hit a wall with politics recently? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how about, um, have you ever hit a, a, a wall with work? Mm-hmm, heard that. <laughs> uh, how many of y'all have ever hit a wall with a car? I don't mean literally, but like <laughs> the car itself. I'm done. Um, house repairs. Uh, there's also hitting a wall relationally, um, like hitting the wall with a coworker, family member. Uh, any of y'all parents hit a wall with your teenagers? Any parents hit a wall with your parents? Um, as a parent, um, we've had a great glory sighting in our household this week, and that's potty training is going really, really well. <laughs> but there's a wall when you hit, isn't there? Um, 
And I was just thinking about hitting these walls and all these things, reflecting on this week. I looked up from my desk, and if you don't know, my office is right over here on the other side of this wall. And as I was sitting there, I looked up and I noticed there was a wall that didn't used to be there. Um, there's a doorway that's no longer there. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. And I, I realized also that while that was going up, other walls were coming down, other doors, other dividing spaces were coming down across our campus. And I decided, you know, that's interesting. I'm going to Google this. Do you know that in the translation that we use here at Andover, in the New Living Translation, 398 times the word wall is used? 398 times in 358 different verses, the idea of, of a wall being constructed or torn down or dividing comes up in our Bible. Um, and, and do you know what happens at the wall in, in the Bible? It's kind of a mixed bag. You've got sometimes very violent things occurring. Uh, sometimes worshipful and prayerful moments happen at walls. I love that. Not in the church, but outside at a wall. Um, sometimes the walls are defensive, keeping things out. Sometimes uh, they come tumbling down and, and they're commanded to be torn down. Um, walls provide really a very unique uh, vantage point for looking at scripture, for looking at the story of God from beginning to end. And what I found most brilliant as I looked over these 398 verses, or 398 uses of the word, is that most often it, when it's used, the people of God are being asked to push through hitting a wall. They're being called to get over a bunk. That's fascinating to me. Think about the major events in the, in the lives of the Hebrew people. They had to push through the, the wall of the plagues. Been during that, they had to push through the Red Sea through 40 years of wandering and whining. Uh, they had to push through the conquest of the land when people were constantly threatening them. That when there were good kings, then there were bad kings in the kingdoms. Uh, they had to push through exile. And as we're learning in this series, uh, they had to push through the promise of what it meant to return. Zerubbabel had led the people after the king of Persia had commanded that God's temple uh, be, uh, re be rebuilt. Ezra uh, had to push through a wall to help a renewal effort and the, the cleansing of this watering down of who God was for the people. And now we learn about this man named Nehemiah who has a whole new wall to deal with. Now we said when we first started the series that Ezra, Nehemiah, and the Hebrew Bible are one book. In our Bibles, they're two separate. Um, and I think the reason for that is when you read the book of Nehemiah, it reads like someone's private prayer journal. It's like Nehemiah left and left it on the counter and some scribe went over and went, ooh, I'm going to use this. It reads as though there are prayers and actions that take place over a 15-year period of time. It's very personal. So who is this man? Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king of Persia. Now, I don't know about you, but this is not a job that I'm signing up for. Now, at the beginning of the, res the, the job description, cupbearer to the king, come and eat and drink with royalty. I'm okay with that. And then there's the, the, the fine print underneath. Um, and make sure that his cup isn't poisoned. Wait, 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 hold on. Time out. <laughs> How do you know if the cup or the food is, is poisoned or not? Yeah, what Bill said. You've tasted it. Which means, oh, I drank it. I'm still alive. It's good. Take it to the king. No thanks. No prime rib is that good. Okay? Um, the cup bearer dies. 
then it was poison. And this is not a job again. I'm looking. Nehemiah is the Jewish cupbearer to a Persian king. And this is important because do you know the king, Artaxerxes, his predecessor, the king before him, do you know how he died? He was assassinated by poison in his food. So Nehemiah comes along and this new king says, you are going to be my cupbearer. It is a position of, of trust. It's a position of, of great honor. It's a big deal. And one day, Nehemiah receives word from his brother that Jerusalem is in shambles. The walls are torn down and people are discouraged. And he walks into the king's uh, temple, his, or his throne room, and he's sad. He's dejected. He's sorrowful looking. Now, if I'm the king and I see my cupbearer who's responsible for not giving me poisoned food, what do I not want to see on my cupbearer's face? Sadness or sorrow or looking like he's confused. And that's what it is. And the king says, uh, Nehemiah, you've got some explaining to do. What's going on? And, and, and Nehemiah says to him, uh, sir, my, my homeland, there's destruction, there's turmoil. And I am deeply saddened by it. The scriptures tell us that the king and the queen listen to this. Not just the king, but they both together. And they agree together to send their trusted friend, their protector, their cupbearer away to Israel, to Jerusalem to rebuild, to govern, to work on the city that was really of little importance to, to Artaxerxes at the time. And just like Zerubbabel and just like Ezra, Nehemiah is sent with this big um, wallet stuffed with cash. Nehemiah is also sent this time with a military escort. And he's given these instructions. Repair the walls of Jerusalem. Make sure the land is in good working order. Now, Nehemiah travels from Susa, which is the capital of the Persian Empire. It's near modern Iran. And, and they go to Jerusalem. And then, um, as he gets there, Nehemiah does nothing for three days. Now, have you noticed that before? Ezra got there. Nothing for three days. Zerubbabel, I think, even did nothing for three days. There's something about a three-day vacation that apparently we're all supposed to do. Nothing? Wow, really? Come on. <laughs> Gets there for three days, and then in the middle of the night, he gets up and he walks around the walls of the city and he takes, uh, takes inventory, inspects. The leaders don't know why he's there. They just see this guy with this huge trunk of cash and a military escort. And the next morning, he gathers the leaders and he says, listen, the king has demanded that the walls be rebuilt. And I'm here to see it done. And I'm here as your governor to make sure it's done. Now, he wasn't elected. He was told to do this. And the next day, Israel gathers, and they are excited for this building project has a strong leader, and it has financial backing, has a military presence, and it's going to offer a protection that they desperately were needing. So they get to work. And Nehemiah, in one of the chapters, he just lists name after name after name of family who's taking this wall and this wall and this wall and this wall. And it goes on and on. And things are going really, really well. They're about halfway through, and all of a sudden, the grumbling starts. Ah, oh, the grumbling. The grumbling gets going, and this grumbling comes from outside of the city. There are other folks who are just not interested in the plans of Jerusalem. They're not interested in the well-being of the city, and they have a different agenda, and they start spreading this kind of nasty rumor. They start billowing threats. They start speaking pretty nasty. And the people get nervous. Who wouldn't? 
And, and as they walk around building walls, they, they pick up bricks and they're looking and they're nervous and their nervousness turns to a paranoid eye. And Nehemiah has to step in and encourage the people. And he says, let's station guards and we'll be okay. We're going to make it. We're going to keep an eye out for you. And they push through a bonk, but now another one comes, and this time it's from within. See, the nobles of Israel, they're lending money during a drought, during a famine, and the poor people can't pay it back. And they can't pay the interest, which is skyrocketing. It's killing them. And some of them are even selling their own children just so they can have the next meal. We call that dark days. And Nehemiah hears about this, and he gathers the noblemen, and he has a little bit of a come-to-Yahweh moment. And in a not direct Hebrew translation, he looks at the people and he says, knock it off. And the nobles have this good sense to go, yeah, it's probably a bad idea. Interest is not good. We're kind of losing influence. Not a good idea. And so they decide that they're not going to do this. And they push through. They agree. They encourage the people. They give them freedom from debt. And the work gets going on again. Yes, push through the wall. And what happens? Another bonk. The outside neighbors, they get more desperate. Their jeering now turns to threats, and the people are freaking out. They are scared to death. Nehemiah, the cupbearer, turned governor, and now contractor, tells to all of his people, attach a sword to your hip, build with one hand, keep your sword on the other. We've got guards every few feet. We've got trumpeters on the corners who are going to blast if anybody sees anything. If we're attacked, we're going to be okay. We're all going to run to each other's aid. And the book of Nehemiah tells us that on October 2nd, the walls are finished, and it takes 52 grueling days for this to happen. Grueling days of worry and exhaustion and back-breaking stonework, but the walls were finished. Now, I want to remind you, these are not walls like we have here. It took them less than a day to put up two studs and hang some drywall. I asked Andy, our building contractor out there, I said, how long will it finish to, to, be, be, to take to the drywall and finish it? He goes, it'll take a solid week to mud it before we can even paint it. That's, a, that's, a, that's drywall. These are big rocks. And they do this in 52 days moving and hauling and, and stacking. And I love that in the midst of this, Nehemiah says, God's hand was with us. Some of us here need to remember that the God who created everything, his hand is with us. Woo. Nehemiah said, God's hand is with us. And then I love this, the people get ready for a party. You know, there's a whole lot more parties in scripture than there is moaning. Um. They get ready for a party three days later. 42,360 folks turn out and respond with a party. And right in the middle of the party, some guy in the middle, he goes, hey, let's take an offering. And every pastor in the room went, woohoo! <laughs> what do they see? They come up and they bring this offering that is extravagant, that is beyond their abilities. They give an offering and they pay off the debt and they say, we're going after it because we know God is here and God is doing something. Remember, this is a people who are in drought. This is a people who are in famine. This is a people, though, who know that God can provide and that they know that they can never outgive God. God is always bigger than their needs. And when we give uh, in that kind of way, God always ends in a miracle. Come on. 
When we realize we can't outgive God, uh, places and people are changed. And Nehemiah watches as the people who push through all of this stuff, all of these walls, wall after wall after wall, they stand up and they bring this extravagant, overwhelming offering to the steps of the temple. And they stand up and they say, let's have another party. And about a month later, they do. And they sing and they celebrate and they say, so, sing songs like, stand up and praise the Lord your God for he lives from everlasting to everlasting. And may your glorious name be praised, may it be exalted above all blessings and praise for you alone are the Lord. Now, think about that. The offering has taken place. They've had two amazing week-long parties. What do you think the naysayers and the folks and the enemies outside the walls were thinking? people who were just given a bankroll by the king of Persia, and yet they brought more money. They brought more offerings. This is a people who for 52 days were carrying stones with swords with one hand and swords with the other. This is a group of people who we've had scared to death. And now they're singing and they're shouting and they're partying. Nehemiah says that as the celebrations were coming to an end, the folks um, who didn't see God's hand, <clears throat> the enemies were, and I love this, disheartened. They were disheartened. They couldn't recover from <clears throat> their boink. The, 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 the wall was too thick. They couldn't get past it. I want to share something with you that, this morning um, I, that, I, that I believe is important. The, the last couple of weeks, I've been really tough on you as a community. Um, I've been tough on us as a congregation. I've been pushing. I've been stepping on toes. I've been not giving you much room to breathe. And, and I've been calling us in that time to a deep discipleship. I've been calling us out of casual Christianity. And I've been pushing for us to have a renovation of more than just brick and stone, but a renovation of our heart. And as I sat in my office this week, and as the wall was going up, and as I'm reading, thinking through this, my initial reaction to this is this thought comes into my head, was I wanted to listen to some voices that kind of get in there every now and then and start speaking to me. And they say things like, Jim, if you keep this up, folks are going to run off. Jim, if you can't keep preaching like this, they're not going to like you anymore. Yeah, I worry about things like that too. But then I read Nehemiah. Then I read about this leader who knew God's people could handle a push. Nehemiah is a man who would take a risk and say, we shouldn't just uh, say we're God's people, we should be God's people. Nehemiah is a guy who decided to call nobles to the carpet. That's like saying your best givers, eh, knock it off. Eh, who does that? Um, this is the same guy who have folks from every back background join in the project. Nehemiah is a guy who I'm sure hit plenty of walls in his leadership but who chose to push through. Nehemiah is a guy who invited people to look at what God was doing and decide if they were going to trust his goodness over their own pocketbook, over their own experiences, and over their own worries about what could be. Beloved of God, you and I are here right now in this moment to do God's work and to advance God's kingdom. Can I get an amen? amen. We are not promised another day, and we do not know what will happen with the economy, the denomination, or anything else. But we do have a choice. We can join in God's work, which according to Nehemiah is a whole lot more than just pew sitting. 
It's a realization that God is up to a whole lot more, even when we have a whole lot less. Or we don't. It's that simple. We have been through it the last several months. This construction project is almost done. Glory, hallelujah. But the work is far from over. We still have a mission to use these walls, these newly constructed walls, to share Jesus. We're going to have to pay, for, pay it off. And I believe some of us can make that happen. Just like the, 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 the temple and the work that was done, they could pay off the debt and open it up to do the work of God. I believe some of us can make it happen. We still have a mission to be transformed by the presence of God and then be a part of his transformational work in the world around us. So, who's ready to give up? Ah, there's the silence I was hoping for. Anyone ready to stop when we have a mile or two left? Anyone want to push down the wall and see what God can do? Anyone willing to see, all right, God, we know what's next. We know that in the, the days that are going to come, there's going to be celebration and there's going to be joy and there's going to be opportunities to say, God's bigger than any, even my own needs and my own desperation. We know that there's going to come a time where we got to push and it's time to step up and step in. We know that there's going to come a time in a great season during Lent to repent, to celebrate. It's going to be a time to stand and shout so that the naysayers and the enemy of our soul will know God's not done with his people yet. Would you pray with me? Oh, God, you are not done with your people yet. That your mighty hand is with us. Wow, it's so awesome. It's hard to be still when we have that life-changing reality. Lord, there's, there's a lot of exhaustion right now a lot of exhaustion what's going on outside of our walls inside of our walls there's a lot of worry there's a lot of anxiety about what's coming next about about general conference and else and, and, and debt and everything else but lord there's also an opportunity to remember that you are the glorious one who's called it all to be so holy one empower us and gift us to not back down, to push past the wall, to learn from Nehemiah and to go after it with everything we got. That as we do, we would be filled with the songs of praise to the glory of your name so that the, the neighbors around us would go, what is going on? That your kingdom would advance. So Holy Spirit, come and fill your people fresh and anew. Anoint us with power from on high that we can do, go about the work. Release us from this place to be your church. To love until it hurts and then to love some more. To give knowing and trusting that you are good and we can't outgive you. Thank you for this word and for this man who led so many years ago. Fill us to be similar kind of people. We pray all of this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.